Well, in healthcare in particular, you have to develop that culture of safety, the ability for people to speak up if they feel like something's not quite right. Healthcare is a team sport, and it takes all the different specialties, the physicians, the nurses, the pharmacists, the technicians, it takes all of those people working together to do what needs to be done to take care of the patients that we're entrusted to serve. You know, it's high risk. So if people don't feel or leaders don't give their subordinates the opportunity to speak up, that creates danger. How you deal with situations that don't go well or how you deal with people that express lack of knowledge or lack of competency is really going to shape the way they progress as professionals and as leaders. And so you have to give them the space to be able to say, I don't know what I'm doing, or I'm uncomfortable with this situation. We need to have a timeout, especially if it's involving the safety of a patient. Creating that culture and modeling it is critical in healthcare. Uh, You cannot have a culture of reprisal or blaming. You have to have that culture of transparency and communication that enables everyone to be able to feel comfortable in raising issues that they feel are important. Welcome, I am your host, Dino Cattaneo, and you're listening to Authentic Leadership for Everyday People, the podcast where we investigate the connection between effective leadership and authenticity. If you're looking for inspiration and tips on how to become a better leader by being your true self, you're in the right place. Our last episode was a conversation on authenticity in management with my friend Mike Horn. Mike is the host of Authentic Change, a great podcast about leadership and change management for people and organizations. We recorded one episode for my podcast and one for his, so you should check both. Today, we're talking to Mary Alice Morrow. Mary Alice had a long and distinguished career as a healthcare leader in the Navy. She started out as a nurse, but she rose through the ranks until she was the CEO of the Naval Hospital in Pensacola. And then she became the chief of staff for Navy Medicine East, providing technical and resource oversight to 50 medical commands east of the Mississippi, including Europe, Bahrain, and Guantanamo Bay. After retiring from the Navy, she had a number of other leadership appointments. Now she's focusing on creating the next generation of nurses and leaders, and she's teaching various programs at the Citadel, the University of Villanova, and Penn. In our fascinating conversation, she touched upon many aspects of leadership, making sure that people feel comfortable doing their job in life or death situations, managing complex healthcare organizations, operating in teams, and leading as a nurse in environments where physicians are considered to be the natural leaders. Finally, we talked about the challenges that frontline caregivers are under in the current situation with the pandemic. But since Mary Alice is a positive person and a real optimist, she also talks about some of the opportunities that the recent changes have brought for the healthcare system. So there's a lot to learn in this episode, and I hope you will enjoy it. All right, Mary Alice, it's great to see you again. It's great to have you on the podcast. Why don't we start and have you introduce yourself to our listeners, a little bit of your story and your career, and we'll go from there. Sure. Thank you, Dino. It's just a pleasure to be here today, and I appreciate the invitation. I went to college to become a nurse, and after I graduated, I raised my hands and I joined the United States Navy, kind of on a whim, but thought it would might be something that would be interesting and adventurous, and so off I went. And I had a three-year contract, and I thought that would be good, and I ended up staying for 29. <laughs> so turned out to be a wonderful 
lifestyle, wonderful job opportunities, and what a privilege to be able to serve. So over the 29 years, I served all around the world, had some postings overseas, and the military in general are very good at developing leaders along the way. So as a nurse, you start out as an officer, and so you're expected to understand leadership. But I would argue as a nurse, you're a leader anyway, because you're responsible and in charge of the patient. So anyway, they grow you along the way, you become a department head, and they send you to training for that, etc. So as I stayed in and advanced in rank, I also advanced in position to running perhaps one nursing unit to several nursing units and eventually into the executive leadership space. So I was screened and selected for command and I was chosen to lead the Naval Hospital in Pensacola, Florida. I did that for a couple of years and from there transitioned to chief of staff role, which was responsible for Navy medicine activities sort of from the east of the Rockies through Europe Africa and Guantanamo Bay. And there were 15 medical commands within that purview. So had a lot of responsibility and answered to the Admiral and it was very challenging. And I finished my career doing that. So I transitioned to a global company for a few years and then went back to government and was running a small VA hospital in Dublin, Georgia for a couple of years before I pivoted completely out of the leadership chair to really start developing the next generation of leaders. In my leadership roles, what really made me tick and gave me the satisfaction of doing it was watching the people that I worked with develop and grow and, and get that confidence as leaders and watch them move into their leadership roles. You know, it's exhausting to run hospitals. And fortunately, I got out of the business before COVID and my heart goes out to all those men and women still really fighting the good fight. It's a very difficult time in healthcare right now. I do some teaching in the undergraduate space. I do teaching at the graduate space and the doctorate space. And I do a lot of work in developing women as leaders for my alma mater, Villanova University in Pennsylvania. That's great. And I think that the level of leadership that you actually practiced is not super common because you were intersectional, if you will, two organizations, almost the Navy and then the health structure within the Navy. So you mentioned that the Navy takes a very good approach to developing leaders. And I'm wondering, as you started thinking about what type of leader you wanted to be, what were a couple of crucial moments where you realized that you wanted to be a certain type of leader, maybe as opposed to another type of leaders? Yeah, thanks. And there was really a pivotal moment very early in my career. I was at a small overseas hospital in southern Spain, and there were only two nurses on and We had to cover a variety of areas within the hospital but we were overwhelmed. We had a, a car accident coming in with three or four casualties, and we had several women in labor that were getting ready to deliver, and we just needed another nurse to help take care of all these patients at the same time. And we had a supervisor that was on call that would come in and back you up. And we called, and the supervisor came in, and when asked what they could do to help, I suggested they either go to the emergency room and help out with the trauma or go to the labor deck and help out delivering with the babies being delivered. And they looked at me and said, I'm really not comfortable in either of those positions. <laughs> I just looked at them I'm like, well, why are you here? And why are you backing me up? And so I just was dumbfounded by that. And it shaped me as I progressed in leadership roles that no one that I was responsible for would ever feel that way again. And so as I moved into senior leadership roles, I wanted to make sure that the people that, that I led had the tools and the resources and the skills they needed to be successful and do their job and take care of the patients safely. So fast forward to Japan, many, many years later, I'm the chief nursing executive, and we have a staffing situation in our labor and delivery 
unit and we just didn't have enough nurses. And you can't go out and hire the local nurses because of the language issues. And so every spouse that was a nurse, anyone that had never really practiced but had a license, I brought them in and and trained them. But more importantly, I took the senior nurses within the organization and made us put a watch schedule together so that we were in-house and capable of backing up the nurses if they needed it. As I grew this very novice crew and and recruited and got new nurses to make the unit safe again. And that that first experience really shaped how I became that type of leader later on. And people came to me with problems or concerns or were afraid. I had to listen to that and do whatever I could to make sure that they felt that they had the support they needed to be successful. Yeah. So this is a really important point that you're making that not being comfortable Part of it comes from the inside of the person, but part of it comes from the environment that you're shaping around them. So, you know, if you were to take the idea of being in a high pressure environment and as a leader who has to make sure that the people working with her or him are comfortable, what are some of the practices that leaders can adopt to make sure that everybody working with them is comfortable in situation of high uncertainty and risk? Right. Well, in healthcare in particular, you have to develop that culture of safety, the ability for people to speak up if they feel like something's not quite right. Healthcare is a team sport, and it takes all the different specialties, the physicians, the nurses, the pharmacists, the technicians, it takes all of those people working together to do what needs to be done to take care of the patients that we're entrusted to serve. And, you know, it's high risk. So if leaders don't give their subordinates the opportunity to speak up, that creates danger. And so how you deal with situations that don't go well, or how you deal with people that express lack of knowledge or lack of competency is really going to shape the way they progress as professionals and as leaders. And so you have to give them the space to be able to say, I don't know what I'm doing, or I'm uncomfortable with this situation, we need to have a timeout, especially if it's involving the safety of a patient. And so creating that culture and modeling it is critical in healthcare. And so you cannot have a culture of reprisal or blaming. You have to have that culture of transparency and communication that enables everyone to be able to feel comfortable in raising issues that they feel are important. And so you do that and and the way you treat people when they do bring up issues or when things go bad, how you treat them is really empowering to those that you're blessed to lead. That's great. And as you're mentioning this, I'm thinking about the fact, obviously, you came from the nurse side, if you will, of the healthcare team. And this may be an assumption for somebody who does not know or understand healthcare, but technically, formally, the physician or the doctor or the surgeon is the leader. Mm -hmm. And yet, a lot of the time, the success of a team is dependent on the leadership ability of, of all the other players. So, What are some of the approaches that leading from a position that technically within the team is not considered the leader one, one can take to bring leadership to the team, if you will? Yeah. So when I took the helm at the Naval Hospital Pensacola, I was the CEO, as you will, the commanding officer. I was a nurse. And my XO or executive officer, COO, was an administrator. And the physician leadership at the time, you know, were there in my office as soon as the ceremony was over, very concerned that I wasn't a physician in the front office. And I said, I appreciate your concern. I think there's four or five physicians on the executive leadership board that govern this hospital. But I am here to tell you, I am not going to tell you how to practice medicine. You should know how to do that much better than I am. 
but let's talk. Let's talk every day, every week, whatever you need to feel that you've got the support that you need as physicians to continue to practice medicine in a way that's uh, effective and safe and takes care of the patients. My bias and part of what makes me tick right now is I think nurses out of all of the disciplines within healthcare are best positions to lead the industry because from day one, as a brand new nurse, you learn and have to know how the whole system operates together on behalf of the patient. The nurse is with the patient 24-7. You know how the pharmacy works. You know how the physicians work. You know how the physical therapy, the occupational therapy, you know how the housekeeping and the kitchen and all the support services, logistics, you learn everything by virtue of being in that bedside care role 24-7 with the patient. And so it bothers me that not as many nurses step up to the plate and want to take those more senior leadership roles because I think they're imminently capable And that's why I do what I do today. I groom the next generation of nurses and women, anyone that's pursuing leadership, but my passion lies in those two areas. Yeah. And it's interesting because you're describing the role of the nurse. I think there's a huge parallel. If you look at the key leadership skills in the the business world in our era is really a deep understanding of on one hand, how the whole system works, but then having like the pulse of the customer. And obviously as a nurse, you literally have the pulse of the patient. (laughs) I'm curious, you went from CEO of the hospital as a nurse to chief of staff as a nurse. And how was that transition in leading a much even larger staff and probably with even more bias towards physicians versus nurses? What were some of the challenges that you faced and how you tackled that? So I had 15 other CEOs or commanding officers. My job was to support them. And then, you know, make sure they could fulfill their missions at their respective organizations. And so I became the person I turned to when I was in that role. So I felt, you know, you couldn't be more authentic than having lived that job for the last two years and stepping into it. So I understood where they were coming from, the bureaucratic issues that you face in a big government organization. I was the CEO of the Naval Hospital from 2008 to 2010, and then the chief of staff from 10 to 12. And we were running... Uh, a very high deployment cycle of the men and women in uniform for our prolonged wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. And so part of what I had to do is to make sure we had enough uniforms to, to continue to feed those deployed requirements and meet the operational mission. And it got hard because up until this most recent war that's been going on that has finally settled down, but it went on for 20 years, we never asked people to deploy six, seven, eight, nine, 10 times. And especially the surgeons, the anesthesiologists, the mental health professionals, they were going in and out of harm's way more times than we've ever asked anybody to do that before. And it played a heck of a toll. So we were running out of people to keep sending and we were breaking some of those people that we did send. And how do you balance that? So a lot of what I had to do was sort of navigate that and work with the other services, the army and the air force to make sure that we were spreading the burden as equitably as possible unfortunately, it fell unfairly on some of the more critical assets that you needed in an operational environment. So it got hard. So it was a position that, from how I hear you describe it, we had a very high level of complexity from an operational and logistical standpoint, if you will. If you think about the skill sets and the activities that you were required to do as a leader, where is your passion? You know, what are the things that you really loved doing in that role? And what are the things that you did because it's what the role required? 
Yeah, I think my passion really is with people. And so as a nurse, I love taking care of my patients. As a leader, I love taking care of the people I lead, the men and women that form together to form an operational unit, a military unit, a hospital, whatever that may be. It is other people that I get my energy from. I am as extroverted as you can possibly be at the far end of the extrovert scale. You know, I'm just sort of a, a Pollyanna. I just, I can find the positive in almost any situation. So I have a, a very high level of joie de vivre. I, I don't have a problem getting out of bed and getting to work and getting people motivated. So uh, those are gifts that I have. And that helps me, I think, be successful. But really, I, I just love to develop the bench. I really enjoy watching the younger men and women that are brand new, you know, watch them become comfortable and competent in their roles and then move on into leadership positions. One of the things we do as nurses and as officers in the military and medicine is we train the enlisted people and they are our medics and our corpsmen. And they're the ones that are doing the heroic work in the operational field. They're the ones with the Marines, with the SEALs, with the soldiers. And they're the ones that are saving people at the point of injury um, before they can get them back to the tent or wherever the surgeons and the nurses are there. The surgeons and the nurses aren't at the tippy end of the spear with the Marines and the soldiers. So part of our job in military medicine is to train them. And these are young men and women, 18, 19 years old, that go to school for three or four months and learn how to kind of be a paramedic, as you will. And then they train under us in our hospitals and clinics and, and then off they go. And it is just unbelievable what they are capable of doing and the, the spirit that they take with them to those positions, those challenges and things that some 18 and 19 year olds shouldn't ever have to deal with. That's an interesting point because I think that not a lot of leaders necessarily have a lot of exposure to the younger people that come in. What are some, and I know it's been a, a while since you were in that position, but what are some of the lessons that you took from interacting with people so young sent out so quickly to a high level of responsibility? Yeah, they make it work. Often would see some of the, the more seasoned leaders within our hospital or at our organization, especially I was deployed on the hospital ship. And, you know, in the beginning of the Iraqi freedom operation 2003, and we had uh, casualties right away beginning of that invasion of Iraq. And then we also had a lot of prisoners that we had to take care of. And the older, more seasoned men and women that were in the medical professions would roll their eyes and shake their head at some of the very young that were with us. But when the ship would have to go dark because of where we were and we couldn't use some of the electronic or the equipment that we were used to or taking care of prisoners, you couldn't use equipment that would be weaponized against you. It was the very young that had the innovation and creativity to figure out workarounds to stuff that those of us that had been around for a while got used to doing. You go to a grocery store and the cash registers start operating and, and you know, that deer in the headlights look like, uh-oh. How do I make change if my computer's not telling me what to do? That kind of stuff. So mixing the old with the young, I think, is a wonderful way to mentor those that are more novice in their professions, but they've got that curiosity and that ability to just be creative and think of things that none of us ever will. And I also think that their comfort with technology is very necessary because everything's changing so quickly in healthcare and technology plays such a big role and they really help those that didn't grow up with technology or didn't grow up playing games and, and things like that. I mean, e even the physicians these days, the, everything's run like a computer game. You know, they're operating with equipment. They're at a console and the needles and the blades and stuff are in the patient and they're running it from a, a kiosk. So they bring a lot to the table. And I think it's important to give them the opportunity to try and fail 
or to be able to say I might have an idea um, because it ultimately benefits everyone. That's a very good point. I'm wondering if you would be willing to share if there was like a setback or something that happened in your career and sort of what you've learned from that. Yeah, so I think probably when I was in charge of the VA hospital in Georgia, it was in a rural sort of middle part of Georgia and very difficult to recruit and retain talent, doctors, nurses. It wasn't a real popular area for people to want to move to to work in this hospital. And it was a hospital that was designed and serviced, as you will, for a time gone by. So, you know, some of the things that we continue to do there didn't really lend itself to the the current way we practice medicine. It, you know, it was designed in a day where a lot of people would come in and spend a couple of days in a hospital if you had your appendix out, those kind of things. So I was sent in to really restructure it quite a bit, and it was very difficult. And I spent a lot of my time doing that, not paying as much attention to some of the metrics that the larger VA the, in the headquarters in Washington found important. And, you know, our numbers slid. And I just wasn't paying attention to it. And it created a very difficult time for us because your stakeholders are your taxpayers. And so everything that, that's going on in your organization is front page news. And so trying to navigate that um, without losing the confidence of the veterans we served and the men and women that, that delivered that care in a way that sort of energized the team to like burning platform. We got to do better. We got to pay attention to this. Um, but I, I take the credit for not having those numbers and, and the quality ratings that we should have had because I wasn't paying attention to it enough. I was busy doing other things. And, and it was an organization I was unfamiliar with, even though veterans are men and women that served and I'm used to that population. The VA runs very, very differently than the, the Department of Defense military hospitals. So, you know, you got to just put your big girl pants on and, and keep going. But it was hard. It was very, very challenging. You know, I kept looking at myself in the mirrors like, do you deserve to be in this job? I, and I, I questioned myself. So I actually have a slightly different question to this, which was brought by the fact that if I understand correctly, you invested into trying to get this hospital closer to sort of a model or adapt to the situation. And in that you slipped on the accepted, if you will, VA numbers in an institution like the Navy and, and even the VA organization. There's a lot of set rules mm -hmm. and I'm sure there's been a situation where you have not personally agreed with a rule or you felt that it was maybe archaic and didn't help the situation. How do you navigate that? Yeah, so you've got to have lots of patience. I mean, the military and the VA and anything in the, in the federal government is very bureaucratic and it takes a long, long time to change. And in some ways, that's a good thing. You know, if you're going to invest in an aircraft carrier, it better be the right one. So that, you know, the 10 year workup to get that is very important in the way that the bureaucracy churns and healthcare with the pace of change. It's very frustrating as a leader because you feel like you just beat your head against the wall to try to change the beast. But there are some things that you just can't do. So you learn to use the system to the best of your ability, but it does create significant frustration. And it's important to be very self-aware of that and not let that frustration sort of cloud the way you present and show up and lead your team. And I am not a patient person to begin with. So that was extremely difficult for me. And I had to kind of do a self-check every time I you know, got in front of a group or in front of my team. That's a good observation. And I want to sort of like from here pivot a little bit since we're talking about self-check and self-awareness. 
Was there a moment when you started articulating, okay, these are my sort of core principles as a leader? As I operate as a leader, these are sort of like the four or five things that are important to me. Yeah. Well, certainly what this podcast is about is you have to be authentic. I mean, you have got to be true to yourself. Each of us have our own internal moral compass. And if you can't stay true to that, you're going to struggle as a leader. And so living the values that you subscribe to is very important to me. And so as a leader, if I don't model the behavior I expect in others, then I don't deserve to be in that leadership role. There's a a couple of things I think that are really important. One is to have a strong sense of who you are, that self-awareness, and constantly be soliciting validation and feedback on that because sometimes we think we're better at something than we might be. And trusting, you know, having that your own personal board of directors to validate that is very important. I think you have to pay attention to, you know, you're constantly learning your intellectual development as much as your physical development. I think one of the best parts about the military, which I didn't like when I first joined, was its commitment to fitness. You don't stay in shape and you don't pass those tests and pass the getting weight and measured like a prized cow twice a year, you're out. So that has never left me after 29 years. You know, the first thing when I plan my day, my week, my month is where is my fitness going to fit into that? You know, where's my, my commitment to myself and keeping myself healthy? And that in turn keeps your spirit healthy. And I think, you know, that spiritual dimension of us is also important to make sure that you care and feed. So some of my advice now to the nurses that I'm teaching and coaching is it's a really hard time for them right now. And that self-care is never more important. So if you're the, the energizer bunny and going and going and going and filling in for all the call-outs and the staffing shortages that we're seeing sustained over the periods of time right now, you're going to burn out and then you're not going to be there for your people. So how do we set that balance? And I think if you model that behavior, at least you give permission to the people that, that you're leading to do that same thing. And I think that's really important. I was very mindful of when I would leave when I was in the uh, CEO roles, because people watch. Is her car still there? Oh, I guess I can't leave. And so everybody works in, in different styles. And some people like to stay at the office, some people like to bring it home. But you have to just be mindful of how you are showing up, how you're acting, and to give the people permission to have a life as well. Yeah, you said something really important there. You said a lot of things that are important. But one thing that is really important is the idea that the people who work for you may have different styles than you. What are some of the things that you did to accept people who have different styles and to make sure that they were put in a position to be their best selves? Yeah. And this I learned along the way because, you know, in my early leadership roles, I always tried to pick people that were like me, you know, oh, we can get this done and we'll bang it out. You know, we'll be done in five minutes and we'll have time to go do other things. And then as I progressed, I realized the important, first of all, understanding your own strengths and weaknesses and balancing your leadership team with complementary strengths and weaknesses. So I can be very decisive, but I like a team approach, especially in healthcare. You know, everybody's got good ideas and you need to make sure that your leadership team has the opportunity to present them. And so Uh, Again, back to practicing patience, it's important to let the people that are not quick to speak, that are processors, that are thinkers, that are creative, that are introverted, to give them that time to process and think and make sure that they have a voice at the table. Because most of the time, they're going to see things that you'll never pick up on in a million years. So I always need people that are very detail-oriented people because I miss things. 
I can look at my resume 50 times and still have a typo. I won't see it. So I need people that can see those details that can really dig into that data and not just look at the big shiny picture the first page presents, but but look deeper. So understanding where you are strong and where you are weak and, and building a team of complementary skills around you, I think is very, very important. That's great. So you, you mentioned that you're right now, you're training nurses. And so as you think about the programs that you're putting together, you're doing that in a couple of different schools with different roles. What are the driving principles that inform these programs and what do you want to achieve for somebody who's come through your program? Yeah, so let me frame that around the women's leadership work that I do at Villanova. We just finished a women's leadership development certificate and it is geared towards women that have a number of years in the workforce, but not necessarily grooming them to get into the C-suite. So it's really about helping women advance themselves as leaders in whatever space that might be, personal, professional, community. And of course, with that idea of the more influence and the stronger a leader we can make them, then the better their personal lives, their professional lives, their community lives, etc. So I think probably the most important work we do is that confidence building, just to take these women or these nurses, if it's part of my nursing curriculum, and show them that how to take ownership and how to recognize what they bring to the table, especially women that have, you know, consider themselves to have taken a backseat, um, more important in their family raising, you know, wanted to spend more time with their children, feel like they don't really compete at the same level of someone that's stayed in a career the whole time. I say not so fast, you know, you're doing very important work and leading in ways that some of us may never be able to achieve. And so validating the strengths and the skills that they have in whatever they do and, and helping them recognize it, I think is probably the most important thing. Same for nursing. You know, you take a brand new graduate coming out of undergraduate school and it is deers in the head. Like, you know, you spent four years giving them the foundation, but when it's time and they're on their own, it can be very intimidating. And so making sure that they understand the basic skills that we set them out with and to not be afraid to ask questions. And then in that day-to-day contact with them, you know, give them the confidence that they need and direct and coach and mentor. Can't emphasize the importance of mentoring, especially in healthcare. And that's sort of how you bridge some of those generational gaps too. You take the people that have been doing it for a million years and don't even think about what they're doing and partner them with the very young. Not only that, but the very young are going to help them get over some of the technical changes that are going on in the healthcare setting. Win-win. Oh, that's great. And, you know, obviously, I have to ask you this, because as you mentioned a couple of times earlier, we are in a very unique time and incredibly challenging time for those that work in healthcare and on the front line. What are some of the concerns that you're hearing from nurses that are getting out into the world? And what are the things that give you hope hearing this nurse is still going out into the world, despite everything that's going on? Yeah. So, I mean, staffing right now is a huge issue. I'm teaching a nurse manager's course right now. And every single one of them, I asked them what the top three leadership challenges they have right now. And there wasn't a single one that didn't say staffing. And so the turnover and the staffing and the retention right now is very difficult. Nursing is an aging profession. The majority of nurses are retirement eligible, big, huge chunk of them. And this prolonged pandemic has helped them get a little closer and stepped right out into retirement sooner than they may have planned otherwise. And so it's left huge gaps. 
And in some of my years in healthcare, when we weren't in a pandemic and we were really struggling with staffing and the, the staffing levels were unsafe, we shut down beds. But when you're in a pandemic and can't even treat the people that are critically ill effectively without, you know, lining the hallways with gurneys and, and the wait times and things like that, it's really challenging. And how do you keep that together? And how do you deal with that, that burnout that, you know, nurses usually work 12 hour shifts. And if there's mandatory overtime, that's another four hours. That's a 16 hour shift. You can't keep doing that. Not only that, it becomes unsafe, but how do you keep them motivated? And, you know, I think in the beginning, in the first year or two, when public support was behind them, it was easy to do because you really felt valued and needed. And now, you know, that tide has turned a bit and, and you're not so valued and needed and it, it becomes very difficult. So, that self-care piece and, and giving them permission to, you know, take a day off. If you need to take a day off, you take a day off, we'll figure it out. Or find ways to involve their ideas for solutions. You can't be the one in, in today's time in the pandemic, you know, talk about authentic leadership and vulnerability. You got to be able to stand up and say, I, I don't know, give me some ideas. What do you think is going to work here? You know, we're in new territory, et cetera. Taking all that and the sustained and prolonged challenge that healthcare is seeing right now is also, you know, the positive person in me is like, oh my God, what an opportunity for innovation. <laughs> and how do we capture all of these pivots and workarounds that we've developed that are fantastic and hardwire them and not lose that as things, if they ever normalize back into sort of the status quo. And my favorite is telehealth. I love to use this as an example. When I was in our little VA hospital in Georgia, telehealth was the answer to our prayers because we could get all sorts of doctors hired if they could live in Atlanta or live in Charleston or live somewhere where it was a more appealing place to live and telework for us, working with the bureaucracy to get the equipment and the things they needed to be successful. And the average veteran that uses us regularly is kind of Vietnam era veteran or and not as quick to adapt that technology. And our goals were always very modest, you know, to increase our use of telehealth, you know, maybe 2% in the next year, up to 5% in the next. And COVID just put that on its heels. And suddenly, it's in use because it's necessary, but it's adopted by the user. And we cut through all the red tape of regulatory bodies and licensure and who's in what state, you know, in that emergency use field, got rid of all of these obstacles that prevent you from rolling that out. And so how do we capture that and keep it and move it forward? That's just one example of all sorts of innovation. You know, in the old days, pre-pandemic, you know, you'd have a staff meeting or try to get nurses to be on committee. They would have to come in on their day off. Well, guess what? You can just zoom right into your staff meeting. You'll get more participation, more buy-in, et cetera, and you're not ruining a day off that's few and far between and quite treasured. That's great. I think that definitely the the ability to mix remote and in person is something that obviously every industry is trying to figure out now and can help if done correctly and can be challenging if not done correctly. Yeah, I read a McKinsey report, I think in the summer of 2020, that suggested that we are looking at a once in a generation opportunity to accelerate change in ways we never would have thought of pre-pandemic. And I, I believe that. So how do we harness that? Yeah, definitely. You know, crises are a great opportunity to push change through. This was fascinating, all of this. I want to shift a little bit to the personal and ask, uh, do you have a passion or an interest that is outside of your professional interest that is really important to you? And, you know, what impact has it had on your professional life? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I love the great outdoors. My body doesn't want me to run anymore, so I walk. 
but I love to, to walk, to hike, to sail, just to do things outside of golf, not obsessively, but I do golf. So I like being outside. I also love all things food. I do have 50% of Italian genes in me. And uh, you'll appreciate that food and wine is what it is all about. And so I love to cook. And I like to sort of leverage all my favorite things by bringing people together, music together, experiment with different recipes, good wine. And that's what I enjoy doing on a weekend, you know, just coming up with something new, getting some people together and enjoying a nice meal together and camaraderie and visiting and things like that. It's my favorite. And family. Family is very, very important to me. I come from a big family and spend quite a bit of time with them as well. That's great. We'll come back to the food at the end of the podcast. <laughs> this is my favorite question. And it is we have a lot of acronyms, jargon, business terms. Is there one in particular that makes you crazy? There was one in the military, I could never get my buy in for it. And that is the word we use for bathroom, which is head, got to go to the head. I just could never like that. But more recently, the word like drives me absolutely crazy. And can someone use a sentence without that word three, four, five, six times? It's a, a symptom of the larger social media jargon that we have started to use, I think, that prevents really good and deeper conversations. And that kind of bugs me. There is a professor at Berkeley College of Music, songwriting professor, who is also a very good songwriter named Pat Patterson. And I think in 96 or 97, he wrote a song that's called The Like Song, which is about the use of the word like. I'll see if I have a recording of it anywhere oh, and awful. send it to you. So final question. This is what I call food for the body or food for the soul. And yeah. you can pick either a recipe or a drink, or you can go to the soul side and, you know, a book, a movie, a piece of art, a piece of music, or you can pick one from each, but that really inspires you or makes you feel great? Yeah, I think I just really love good Italian food. And that's my favorite type of food to cook with just simple and fresh ingredients. I like to shop almost every day for the fresh ingredients and figure out a way to put them together and nice bottle of wine to complement it and good people around me. That is probably my favorite. Do you have a recipe that's your go-to recipe? I have a couple. What my family loves to kid me about, I like to do inventory management. I'll get all the vegetables that are discounted because they're rotting and what can I come up with? So I sort of like to challenge myself with what can I do with whatever's on hand, but just a simple pasta with vegetables and, and seafood. A friend of mine got herself, myself and uh, other friends within this group and their daughters foolproof fish recipe, which is America's test kitchen. And so we all take turns trying recipes and then critique them and take pictures of them and show us. And that book has never disappointed. It's called Foolproof Fish. And it's taken all these expert chefs and they try to make the same dish every which way and they perfect it. And boy, it is a lot of fun to try them. And they're simple. They don't usually take a lot of time, which I, I like to be able to prepare stuff quickly, like within an hour or so, so you can spend your time visiting, not cooking. Well, none of this statement I will disagree with because I love cooking with Italian fresh ingredients. I like experimenting with whatever is in the <laughs> in the pantry and I like quick recipes. So we'll have to cook together, Dino. We will. Absolutely. I should at some point I should get like all the guests who love cooking. I should do like a let's cook together episode. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, that would be wonderful. Mary Alice, thank you so much. It's been a really inspiring 
and powerful conversation. And it's great to talk to you again. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, please tell a friend who may enjoy it too and tell them that they should listen to it. And if you really like the show, tell your friends and post about it on social media. Make sure you're subscribed to the show on your favorite listening platform so you don't miss any episode when they're released. And if you listen on a platform that allows reviews like Apple Podcasts or iTunes or Good Pods, please leave us a good rating and a good review. Stick around because at the end of the credits, I am going to share a song by one of Boston's best Americana singer-songwriters, Susan Cataneo. You can find Mary Alice on LinkedIn at linkedin.com backslash in backslash Mary Alice dash Morrow. And Mary Alice is spelled as a single word and Morrow is spelled M-O-R-R-O. You can find me online at al4ep.com with the number four. And you can email me at dino at al4ep.com. On Twitter and Instagram, look for at al4edp with the letter D. And on Facebook, the show is Authentic Leadership for Everyday People. This episode was produced by me, Dino Cattaneo, with additional edits by Pro Podcast Solutions. It was recorded remotely using Squadcast.fm. The theme music was composed, produced, and arranged by Nicolas Cattaneo, who also played keyboards and drums, with Tony Savarino on guitar and Jesse Williams on bass. And now, as promised, here is a song by Susan Cattaneo. It's a song about being there for someone you care. It's taken from her first album, Brave and Wild, and it's called Lay Your Heart on Me.